Turn to Titus 2 if you haven't turned there already. We're going to finish that chapter today, so that's exciting. I read this article from the New York Post this week. Uh, The title is, New York City Hipsters Can Now Rent a Mom. It was provoking, so I clicked. She'll listen to your problems, sew that button back on, and never try to act cool in front of your friends. Meet Nina Keneally, 63, a Brooklyn-based mom of two grown sons who has now begun selling her surplus mothering skills for $40 an hour plus expenses to muddled millennials. Keneally's new business, Need a Mom, caters to 20 to 35-year-olds who need a mother, but not their own nagging, guilt-tripping, real-life mom. She'll dish out criticism, uh, criticism-free advice over coffee, coffee, help plan and shop for a dinner party, bake a cake and bring it over, and even buy presents for your actual mother and wrap them for you. <laughs> Need a mom is a shoulder to cry on, not a cleaning service, Keneally stressed on Wednesday. Don't expect me to clean your closet or do your laundry, she warned, adding in true mom fashion, I'm not your maid. She also won't be your actual shrink, but she'll make referrals. I found they'd reach out to me, she said of the millennials she'd met in yoga studios and in cafes. Keneally offered advice and a compassionate ear and realized that she could monetize her mothering. She had about six clients so far, all in Bushwick. All the friends and people around me are the same age, and shrieks and shrinks are kind of impersonal, Natalie Chan, 34, explained. She pays Keneally $40 for coffee and counseling sessions after their Thursday yoga class each week. She doesn't judge, Chan added. She just kind of likes smiles and says, stop doing that. She'll never say you're stupid. So, rent a mom. Doesn't that make you grateful for the church? Young adults, see how much money you can save just by being a part of a local church? You don't have to rent a mom. Uh, But some of you are thinking, man, there's young Air Force kids in town. My kids are grown. I could, this is lucrative. I might be able to do this. Anyway, that that story caught my attention this week because in the passage that we looked at last Sunday, Titus 2, 1 through 10, Paul is instructing the churches about how they are to behave and interact with one another, how they are to adorn the gospel they believe with good works, how they are to live distinctively Christian lives in an immoral and depraved Cretan culture. And one of the things Paul said within that, he said that the older men and women are to mentor and teach the younger. And he gave a description of the conduct and character of the younger women in the church. And anyway, it got back to me that some of the young moms in our church were a little discouraged by that part of last week's sermon. Discouraged because what Paul described as the ideal, it doesn't come close to being the reality in their home. And in their minds, that ideal that Paul puts forth is it's basically impossible, which I get that. You know, maybe you have three kids and you have two in diapers and everything's crazy and, and it's a weekly miracle just to make it to church. So I understand that. I'll stand here this morning and double down on your sentiments and say, you're absolutely right. This ideal young woman that Paul puts forth in verses 4 and 5 is impossible. In your own strength, in your own power, in your own 
isolated effort, it is impossible to to love and submit to your husband, to love your children well, to manage the home, to be kind and pure and self-controlled. It's impossible. Which is why I am so glad Paul wrote the next four verses. The next four verses in chapter 2 supply the basis for what's prescribed in the first 10 verses of chapter 2. Without the power and the truth of what we're about to read, any actualization of what we looked at last week is impossible. Whether you're an older man, an older woman, a younger man, a younger woman, an employee, all of those commands that Paul laid out, all the ways Paul said, this is what you and the church need to look like. It's impossible without what we're about to read. So let's read it together. Chapter 2 of the book of Titus, verses 11 through 15. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul writes these words. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Commentator Philip Towner calls this passage the rhetorical high point of the letter, which means everything Paul has said thus far leads up to this, and now what he'll say from this point on will flow from this. It's the rhetorical high point of the letter. So reading that passage, there's mention of two appearing appearings. So first, the grace of God has appeared. That's verses 11 and 12. Paul gives an explanation of what happens when the grace of God appears. And then in verse 13, Paul says, the glory of God will appear. And that's a future event. That has not yet happened. The glory of God will appear. So the grace of God has appeared. The glory of God will appear. And then verse 14, we see that the gift of God is amazing. Those are my three points this morning. Let's start in verse 11. The grace of God has appeared. The close connection of these four verses to the previous ten verses is established by the first word of verse 11, the word for. For introduces Paul's theological reason for commanding the conduct that he described in verses 1 through 10. Why and how can Paul demand that the lives of the Cretan Christians look how he described? How can he do that? How can he call them to such a way of life as that? Because grace. That's why. That's what follows the opening preposition for, for the grace of God. The grace of God, this is a phrase used 15 times in Paul's letters. And it's used to describe unmerited divine favor. What is meant by unmerited divine favor, you ask? It means God has shown believers in Christ. God has shown you immeasurable mercy, unending love 
boundless compassion. He's shown you favor. And it's not because you deserve his kindness in any way, shape, or form. It's not because you've earned his mercy by your good works and your supreme worthiness. No, not at all. It's 100% by the grace of God. God's kindness comes to you by his free grace. Turn-of-the-century revival preacher Harry Morehouse, he tells the story of walking along the street in a poor part of Chicago where he witnessed a minor tragedy. A small boy who could not have been more than six years of age, he came out of a store with a pitcher of milk. The little fellow was making his way carefully along the street when he slipped and fell, the pitcher breaking and the milk running all over the sidewalk. The boy let out a wail and Harry Morehouse rushed to see if he were hurt. There was no physical damage, but the child would not be consoled, crying out over and over, my mama will whip me, my mama will whip me, my mama will whip me. Mr. Morehouse said to him, well, maybe the pitcher is not broken in too many pieces. Let us see if we can put it together again. The boy stopped crying at once. He watched as Mr. Morehouse placed the base of the, the, the pitcher on the sidewalk and started building up the pieces There were one or two failures, and the pieces fell apart, and at each failure, the boy started crying again, but was silenced by the big preacher who was helping him so much. Finally, the entire picture was reconstructed from the pieces, and it stood there in perfect shape on the sidewalk. The little fellow was given the handle, and he poked it toward the place where it belonged, and of course, knocked the whole thing apart once more. This time, there was no stopping his tears, and it was then that Mr. Morehouse gathered the boy in his arms, and walked him down the street to a crockery store. There he bought the lad a new pitcher. Then he went back to the milk store, had the pitcher washed and filled with milk. Carrying the boy on one arm and the pitcher of milk in the other hand, he followed the boy's instructions until they arrived at his home. Very gently, Morehouse deposited the lad on his front steps, carefully put the pitcher in his hands, and then said to him, Now will your mama whip you? A smile broke on the boy's streaked face, and he answered, Oh, no, sir, because it's a lot better picture than the one we had before. (laughs) Morehouse applies the experience this way. He says, The story may be simple, but it represents faintly what the Lord Jesus Christ did for me and for you. Whether you will accept the fact or not, you had dropped the picture of your life, and its milk was spilled beyond regathering. You may have spent much time in trying to patch the pieces together again, but God assures you that you are broken beyond repair. And it was when we were broken and hopeless and in the despair of our lost condition that the Lord Jesus intervened to save us. He may have watched our efforts at patching for a while until we could come to the place where we believed beyond question that it is impossible for us to repair our lives in a way that would ever satisfy the holiness of our Heavenly Father. So it was then that he carried us in the strength of his arms and purchased for us an entirely new nature, a new life which he imparted to us on the basis of his loving kindness and his tender mercies. It was not because there was good in us, but because there was grace in him. So that's the kind of image we need to have when we think about the grace of God. We are people with ruined lives, unable to fix ourselves, or our situations, hopeless and scared, but ultimately rescued by a kindness that is outside of us. 
But we don't serve grace well, however, if we just reduce it to an abstraction or an illustration like that. And this passage actually tells us this. It tells us this by saying that the grace of God appeared. That word appeared is the word epiphany. In Greek literature, this word functioned as a technical term to describe a hero or perhaps a god who broke into a hopeless situation to to rescue someone from danger. Sort of a have no fear, Superman is here kind kind of thing. So when Paul uses this same word appeared or epiphany to describe the coming of grace, he is intertwining it with the person of Christ. Meaning when Christ came to earth, when the Son of God became man, sent to save sinners, grace appeared not as an abstraction, but in a person. Remember John 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1. What does it say in verse 14? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. In the early service we sang an Isaac Watts song. Isaac Watts is one of my favorite hymn writers. One of his tunes, Plunged in a Gulf of Dark Despair, says this. Here's the first couple of stanzas. Plunged in a gulf of dark despair, we wretched sinners lay. Without one cheerful beam of hope or spark of glimmering day. With pitying eyes, the Prince of Grace beheld our helpless grief. He saw, and oh, amazing love, he ran to our relief. And the text says this personified grace, this grace that runs to our relief, appears to us in the person and work of Christ. It brought salvation for all people. The previous section spells out just how wide-reaching this salvation actually is. It bypasses no one. It appeared to all, regardless of age, regardless of sex, regardless of social standing. Therefore, no one can say, I have an honored place in the church because I belong to this certain group, or because I have a certain heritage, or I have a certain intellectual understanding. No, it came for all kinds of people, not just certain kinds of people. The saving grace in the person of Christ is not at all limited in its scope. The grace is offered to and sufficient for all people, regardless of how terrible or terrific they may be. But what you also need to understand is that all doesn't mean everyone. It does not mean every single person is saved. Paul is not teaching universalism here by using the word all. Don't read bringing salvation to all men and think, okay, everyone's covered. We're good. No, all means all kinds of people. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Male, female, young, old, slave, free. All people, all kinds of people. You see, Christianity is at the same time the most inclusive and exclusive religion in the world. Inclusive because any person, anywhere, at any time can come to Jesus for salvation. They just must repent and believe when they hear the gospel. No other religion has that kind of inclusiveness. But at the same time, the Bible says it's only through Jesus that you can be saved. 
So it's thoroughly exclusive as well because it's only through Christ that we have a way to the Father. And so now look at verse 12, and you see that this grace not only appears bringing salvation for all, as if that weren't enough, it starts to get active in your life. It teaches or trains. There are two aspects to its teaching. First, grace teaches the believer negatively, which means it teaches us to deny or to say no to ungodliness, which ungodliness is the root problem shared by every single one of us. Without grace, we are all ungodly. Ungodliness is our idolatry combined with our immorality. We worship false gods, counterfeit gods, and and we follow that with lives that are gross and immoral. But when grace takes over, the sinner repudiates that ungodliness. And this repudiation is a definitive act. It's a clear decision to give up that which is displeasing to God. We refer to that as repentance. It's a turning. It's calling our sin what God calls our sin and and moving away from it, which then causes us to reject worldly passions, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, these strong, sinful passions that, that previously controlled us. They have now been pushed back by grace. The inordinate desire we have for for pleasure and power and and possessions, these worldly passions which are an an outflow of ungodliness, they lose their grip on our hearts or perhaps we, we lose our firm grip upon their attraction. So it's not willpower that gets you to renounce worldly passions. It's not enlightenment or intelligence It's grace. Grace gets you to deny these things. Second, grace instructs us positively. It trains us to live sensibly, the text says. So grace has a very positive inward dimension. It results in self-control or self-mastery. And maybe we're not all there yet completely, but we see it developing in our lives as a fruit of the Spirit. So it involves ourselves. It also involves others because it teaches us to be upright. So it has a a positive outward dimension where others can look to us as people with, with honesty and integrity because we're upright. And then it has a Godward sort of dimension Grace trains us to be godly or or, or reverent in this present age. This is the upward dimension of grace's positive instruction. When we realize that we live our lives before God, that trains us to live lives of worship and devotion to the Lord, Not not out of fear or duty, but out of gratitude. And all of this we do in this present age. Which is to say, we do this in a time where we look back to Jesus Christ, God's tangible manifestation of grace in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We look back to that because in that event, grace appeared. And then we also look forward as Christians to to another appearing, to another epiphany. But we do that within this present age. One way of thinking about it is take this room, for instance. Let's say in this room we are living in this present age. 
And we look through these windows back to when the grace of God appeared in the incarnation of Jesus Christ and Him coming to this earth as a man, born of a baby, born of a virgin, born of a baby, born of a virgin, living a sinless life, dying a heinous death, rising again on the third day. We look back to that. That's through those windows. And in this present age, we then also look forward through these windows. Look forward to when the glory of God will appear. That's the next appearing in this passage. It's glory. You know, as Christians, we're really good at looking back to that first appearing. We're good at looking back to the baby in a manger and the Jesus of the Gospels and the man on the cross. We're good at remembering that Christmas is coming. What is it, like six weeks away? You're beginning to get ready. Somebody told me they're putting the Christmas tree up this afternoon. We want to meaningfully commemorate the first advent of Jesus Christ. And now some of you are completely derailed. You're starting to think about Christmas decorations and whether or not you're supposed to get them down and come back. That just shows how good we are at looking back at that first advent. But here's the deal. Here's what should equally excite you. He's coming again. He came the first time in grace and in truth. He'll come a second time in the fullness of his glory. The text calls this our blessed hope. Now, I recognize that each of us in this room has some things that we're hoping for. We're hoping for better health. We're hoping for financial security. We're hoping that we don't gain 15 pounds during the holidays. We're hoping that that the pain goes away or the anxiety goes away or the depression will go away. Maybe you're hoping that a loved one comes back to the Lord. We're, we're all hoping. We spend much of our lives hoping, do we not? But the thing is, I have no idea if what you're hoping for is going to come to fruition. I have no idea if the pain is going to go away. I have no idea if what you're hoping for is really going to happen. I can encourage you. I can pray for you. But I can't assure you that any of those things will really come to be. I can't. But I am certain that Christ will return in glory. I can assure you that just as he fulfilled a promise in his first coming, he'll keep his promise by coming again. And when he comes, that will mark our deliverance from the evil and the suffering in this world. That will be the end to sin in our lives. The end to the battle that we have with worldly passions. The glorious appearing of our blessed hope. What a blessed hope that is for those who believe and put their trust in Christ. And just to be clear, because the language in verse 13 is a little tricky. It says, the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. By the way, I don't know if you noticed this, but these four verses, 11 through 14, it's one long run-on sentence. Paul just starts piling thoughts and ideas and theology on top of itself. But the, the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Paul is not referring to two different persons in the Godhead here. He's not saying, the glory of our great God... And our Savior Jesus Christ are going to appear. What it's saying is Jesus Christ will appear in glory and his glory will be the glory of God and that's because Jesus Christ is fully God. This is a powerful and explicit declaration that Christ is divine. He is God, 100% man, 100% God. And so the knowledge that our God in all his glory and fullness is coming again, this creates hopeful expectancy in believers. 
Expectancy that, that generates faithfulness when the days are really dark and grants us perseverance in times of trial. Christ is coming, so we desire, therefore, to be faithful to him. And knowing that he will ultimately deliver us, that he will vanquish our enemies, that he will set the whole world right by his redeeming power and glory, that's our cause for living godly lives in this present age. The imminent return of Christ is a sanctifier for the church. So those are the appearings. Let's look at the gift in this passage. Verse 14. What's given to us is amazing. Verse 14. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Pastor Brian Chapel, he was formerly president of Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis. He wrote a volume on the book of Titus, and he states this about this passage. He says, The apostle designs every phrase of this beautiful verse, verse 14, to exude the wonder of Christ's work and the consequent status of his people. But before we talk about that status, our status that we have, let's first see that we are recipients of a gift. We're recipients of a gift, and that gift is Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity. He gave himself for us. He acted on our behalf. Though we were yet sinners, he willingly died in our place. There's there's no bigger news than that. There's nothing in your life more important than that. There's no idea more weighty than that one, that Christ gave himself for us. Whatever's swimming around in your head right now, it gets trumped by that. Hendrickson said, another commentator, contemplation of this sublime thought should result in a life to his honor. He gave himself for us. Willingly. It wasn't by accident. It wasn't a tragedy. We studied in the book of Mark. He set himself to do what he intended to do, which was to die in our place. And so the rest of this verse unpacks what Christ's giving himself accomplishes for us. And this this is our status. First, we're redeemed. He has redeemed us from all lawlessness. The word redeemed literally means to release upon the receipt of a ransom. To release upon the receipt of ransom. Our our being redeemed cost something. And let me tell you, it was pricey. Jesus actually speaks of himself as the cost. He calls himself our ransom. Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many, those are the words of Jesus. Paul in 1 Timothy 2.6 says, There is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as, as a ransom. Christ rescued us by becoming a ransom for sin in our place in order to satisfy divine justice and free us from guilt. 
to say he redeemed us, to state that we have redeemed status, that means an ultimate price has been paid for our release, and the price was Jesus Christ. Something of infinite value was given to buy you back for God. That should tell you something of your value to him. You only pay what something is worth. And therefore, what you are worth to God is the value of his son. Let that simmer in your mind. Second verse 14 says we are cleansed. This is the second part of our status here. We are cleansed. I derived cleansed from the, from the word purified. We are purified. Christ offered himself to purify, purify a people for himself. The phrase is intended to remind us of the Old Covenant. And in the Old Covenant, there was every type of, of cleansing and sacrifice and ceremony and offering and washing, every kind of discipline and duty. Every kind, but it was never intended to, to actually accomplish true purification. None of it actually finished the job. They always had to do it again and again and again and again. And that's because God had given these ceremonies and these offerings and these duties. He'd given this law to his people not to make them clean, but to show them how badly they needed to be cleaned. So as the fulfillment of all those old covenant practices, Christ's sacrifice and and his shed blood It cleanses once and for all, all of those to whom it is now applied by faith. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It's the doctrine of expiation. That doctrine that says, through the sacrifice of Jesus, we have been cleansed from the defilement of our sin. By Christ giving himself on the cross, we are thoroughly and completely made clean, whiter than snow, spotless, blameless, pure, whatever your favorite adjective is. What the blood of bulls and goats could never do, Jesus did once and for all time. So we're cleansed. Third status in verse 14, we are treasured. Having redeemed and cleansed us at such an awesome price, God's attitude toward us you know, his attitude toward us, it could be one of, of resentment or disdain. Look what you made me do. It could. But instead, we who are purchased and purified, he now claims us as a people for his own possession. The Greek phrase reflects the wording of Exodus 19.5, where God identified his covenant people as my treasured possession. We are precious to God. Our sin had us at odds with God, but his son made us his very own. We are not a people he merely tolerates. We are a people he celebrates. Celebrates because of the momentous work of the son and what that work accomplished. We are a people who are his, a people who are in Christ, in union with Christ, a people whom God looks upon and sees. He sees not their sin, not their dysfunction, but he sees Christ, his perfect son. So just to summarize, because Christ's work alone purchases our our salvation, 
through the redeeming price of his blood. And because Christ's work alone purifies us through the cleansing that his blood supplies, we do not look to our own works as the basis of our acceptance with God. No, 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 not at all. Doing what God requires does not make us his own, but having been made his own by no work of ourselves, we now love to love him who first loved us. And such love has profound effects upon our attitudes and our actions. It's the kind of love which makes us, as the text says, zealous for good works. I'll conclude with verse 15. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Paul's command to Titus and to the other churches in Crete is this. Preach the gospel. Don't let anyone tell you it's foolish. Don't let anyone tell you there's another way to grow a church or, or, or feed the flock or that it's irrelevant or that people don't really want to hear that anymore. Preach the gospel. Talk about redemption in Jesus and cleansing in Jesus and salvation in Jesus and in him alone. Preach that grace has appeared. And where grace reigns, grace trains. And people will then live lives that honor him. They'll adorn the gospel with their good works. But it starts with preaching the gospel. I don't know if you guys have ever noticed this, but weekly, every week, I give this free offer of the gospel. Because I never want to be delinquent in preaching the gospel and offering the gospel and stating to a people gathered to hear the gospel that they can trust in Christ and have their sins taken away, cleansed, be made whiter than snow. I never want to be delinquent in offering that because I know in a a crowd this size, and we're not huge, but we're here, there are people that have never really ever done that, never really put their trust in Jesus. Or maybe they thought they've had, but when it comes down to it, maybe they have not, or maybe they're just confused. And they need to know that it's, it's not their doing. It's what Christ has done. It's the grace that has appeared. And it's a grace that brings salvation to all men. And it trains and it makes us live lives that are pleasing to God so that we can look and wait and watch and be hopeful because we know he's going to come again. We know that he's going to appear a second time and he's going to set all things right. Let's pray again. Father, we love you and we thank you for this time that we've had in your word. We thank you for your word. We thank you for just all of it, but we think about verse 14 and all that that verse contains about about who we are, about the status we have, that people redeemed and cleansed and treasured by you. God, press the truth of, of these words into our hearts and into our minds, whether we've been walking with you for decades or maybe just a few weeks just astound us with the profound nature of these truths. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.